You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Matthew 26 is our text. As you're turning there, let's talk about friendship at the beginning of our time together. Everyone loves a good friend. Everyone loves a good friend, someone that they can confide in, someone they can trust, someone they can go do for counsel, someone who will interact with them and kind of share the joys and the sorrows of life. You know what it's like to have a good friend. Most of you, maybe many of you, have had good friends before. Maybe some of you are struggling right now with the lack of friendship, and you feel that in your life. You know good friends and bad friends. A good friend is somebody who you feel like you can be real with. You can seemingly be transparent with. You can seemingly disclose the truths about yourself that you're thinking and or have experienced, and when they learn these things, they will not turn from you. They will not walk away from you. They'll understand good days and bad days. They'll forgive you even when you've done things against them. They'll recognize the reality of that. Sometimes, though, the truth is friendships can hurt you. They can be hard to deal with. People can disappoint you greatly as you entrust yourself to others, and they seemingly have abandoned you. They have walked away from you. You have seemingly confided in them. You have served them. You've loved them. You've interacted together historically in a number of ways, some childhood friends, some work colleagues, some neighbors, and then those relationships come to an end. In fact, the truth is sometimes bad experiences in friendship make us very guarded and self-protected and suspicious of future friendships. Do I want to go through that again? Is that something that I want to experience again? And obviously many of us would say, no, I don't want to go through that again. So we take a kind of a guarded, protective nature at times. Some of you are sitting here today kind of dealing with the aftermath of bad friendships, and that's made you a little difficult to be friends with because you are preserving yourself. You don't want to put yourself out there. The truth is we were made for companionship. If not in marriage, as we see with Adam and Eve, at least in friendship. In fact, a sign of a good marriage is when a husband and wife are good friends. You'll often find sometimes marriages that don't have that baseline of friendship puts a ceiling on how far and how close that marriage can actually be. It can sometimes feel more like roommates than it does best friends living together. But you don't have to be married to understand friendship and to appreciate it. Jonathan Holmes, writing in the company we keep in the search of biblical friendship, says that God made us in such a way that we cannot enjoy paradise without friends. This idea of relationship and friendship is even understood in that. The challenge that many today have is that we don't have perhaps very deep relationships. The truth is, to speak candidly about a lot of our friendships is that they can be rather shallow. In fact, I've been surprised at times to interact with people that I'm learning for the first time who have been seemingly friends with others for a long time and others who have known them for a long time don't actually know them that well. 
They just have known them for a lot longer amount of time, and they maybe have a lot more data points of their life, but they don't actually know them well. They've not actually dove deeply into discussions. They've not actually talked seriously about any kind of meaningful conversations and challenges. Not just what you're doing, but what you're thinking, and what you're thinking about what you're thinking, and why you're doing it. Vaughn Roberts writes in the book True Friendship the following, quote, we live in interwoven networks of terminally casual relationships. We live with the delusion that we know one another, but we really don't. We call our easygoing, self-protective, and often theologically platitudinous conversations, quote-unquote, fellowship. They seldom ever reach the threshold of true fellowship. We know cold demographic details about one another. Married or single, type of job, number of kids, general location of housing, etc. But we know little about the struggle of faith that is waged behind, waged every day behind well-maintained personal boundaries. He continues, one of the things that still shocks me in counseling, even after all these years, is how little I often know about people I have counted as true friends. I can't tell you how many times in talking with friends who have come to me for help that I've been hit with details of difficulty and struggle far beyond anything I would have predicted. Privatism is not just practiced by the lonely unbeliever, it is rampant in the church as well. Sad how commonly even the church of Jesus Christ, where seemingly we share so much in common in Christ, we can still have such shallow relationships. Some can maintain privacy due to relational immaturity. Others can maintain privacy due to previously bad experience. Again, Vaughn Roberts helps us here. He says, quote, The greater our understanding of the Bible's teaching about the depth of human sin, the less we are likely to be shocked by the revelation of our own friend's struggles and the more we'll be willing to be open with them about our own. Friend, the reality is relationships are hard. You really have kind of two choices. Put yourself out there and run the risk of disappointment at best, betrayal at worst, Or your second choice is just don't put yourself out there. Maintain a fence of privatism where you interact with civility, some level of social etiquette and conversation, exchanging demographic facts about your day and your week and your relationships and your jobs and your your comments about the news, but maintain largely isolation in order that you might not feel deeply that level of betrayal. Neither one are good options if you do not understand the reality of sin. Because option one is tainted by sin. 
Well, today is not a sermon about friendship. Today is a message about betrayal. Not between two fellow sinners who have disappointed each other and have to get over that and learn to practice forgiveness as they see themselves in solidarity with the other one's weaknesses. Today is of a betrayal of a friendship of the highest order of someone that could seemingly be the most perfect friend, if we can use the school childhood vernacular, that childhood vocabulary that we often use to modify our friendships of ranking order with this term, best of friends. For today, we see betrayal of no one less than a disciple of Jesus, betrayal of him, of Jesus himself. This is unpacked for us in the text of Matthew 26 as we see a betrayal that is beyond tragic, but nevertheless one that we can learn from as it gives us an inroad back to the good news of Jesus. Our text this morning is in Matthew 26. We've been making our way way through the gospel of Matthew. We come now to Matthew 26 just again give you the sense of what's been going on in the text leading up to this. It is Thursday in Passion Week. Chapter 26, verse 1, Jesus is talking about this upcoming time of Passover, the Son of Man being delivered up to be crucified. The chief priests and the elders of verse 3 are gathering. They're, they're plotting together, verse 4, in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they don't want to do so during the feast. There's going to be uproar amongst the people, right, that they want to deal with. Last time we were together a couple weeks ago in verse 6, we saw and following just the radical worship of Mary and how that worship was not only head-turning, it was convicting And then from an extreme example of commendation to an extreme example of concern and condemnation, we now learn of Judas. Follow with me, Matthew 26, verses 14 to 25. Matthew writes, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? They paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, referring to Jesus, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful. And began to say to him, one after another, is it I, Lord? He answered, 
He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. All right, here's what we're going to do as we work our way through this text. I want to, first of all, just go through it with you again and have you make a few connections both to understand the context and to see what's going on here in the larger scene. And then we're going to learn three lessons that we can recognize about this because they're significant by way of encouragement, not just by way of caution. Well, you see here in the very beginning is there's like this hard left turn, just to again give you the sense of transition of what Matthew's writing. Hard left turn, just to again give you the sense of transition of what Matthew's writing has been. Speaking about Mary, he says in verse 13, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be said in memory of her. So we've gone from like the heights of praise of a woman like Mary, who's taken this alabaster jar of perfume, who's broken it, Nine months worth of wages just poured out on Jesus. In fact, it says later in another text in the book of Luke that she not only put it on his head, she even used it on his feet and used her hair to wash his feet. So it's a remarkable praise with amazing encouragement. And then immediately, like with whiplash, Matthew says, let me tell you what happens next. We go from Mary to Judas. And just so plainly, Matthew says here in the text, Getting clarity on which Judas this is, not an uncommon name, Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve. He's not just giving a marker here of to which identity it is, he's also giving a description of the significance of why this betrayal is so dark. Went to the chief priests. Now, just to remind you, the chief priests that are referred back in verse 3. The chief priests and elders who are plotting together in order to arrest Jesus. Here comes Judas. Now, to get a, a sense of this, Judas is with Jesus and the disciples. And at some point in the timeline here, Judas leaves them walking from Bethany back into Jerusalem. This is a couple mile walk. This is not like you just walk down the road and like, well, there's a temple, I'll be right back, I'll get some groceries. Like, he, he went a couple of miles walk. Now, you got to imagine, just think of the timeline here. Judas is walking in order to betray the Savior. And here he comes to the chief priests, the elders. You can only imagine what this would have been like for them. They've been plotting, they've been wondering. It would almost would seem in their self-righteous, twisted, perverted, dark prayers like as if this was their answer to prayer. We've been wondering how we could pull this off. Here is Judas. Judas asked this question, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? There's this emphasis. What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Judas is interested in this for himself. There's different reasons why it says perhaps Judas has been interested. Everyone speculated over the years as to why Judas would do this. 
Some have said Judas has done this because of his love for money. Others, his jealousy over the other disciples. Others have recommended perhaps the idea of his disillusionment at the inevitable outcome of Jesus' ministry or his enthusiastic intention to somehow force Jesus to become the king or perhaps his own bitterness that when his worldly hopes for a place of prominence in the messianic kingdom were going to be crushed and his three years of Jesus was wasted, at least let me get something out of this. Perhaps all these play a role in Judas' Judas's heart. Whatever the reason, as Michael Wilkins says, Judas's betrayal stands as history's most infamous act of traitorous treachery. For what? For 30 pieces of silver. Now, this is significant for several reasons. Number one, it's prophesied in Zechariah that this is what would happen for this exact amount. Secondly, this amount is the same amount referenced in the Old Testament, specifically Exodus, of the price of a slave that was accidentally gored to death by an ox. It's a, it's a trivial amount. You were supposed to give the master of that slave 30 pieces of silver. It speaks to how trivial, how tragic Judas would betray Jesus for. 30 pieces of silver. This is equivalent of about four months of wages. Once he receives this amount, he would go back to Bethany to join Jesus and the other disciples. That picks us up in verse 17, as it says here. Verse 17 and following talks about this idea of the, the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. This first day is sort of the beginning of really what's going to be an eight-day period on that first day, the Passover lambs of the sacrifice were going to be sacrificed. The Feast of Unleavened Bread followed immediately after the Passover. The entire eight-day event was called the, the Passover Week. And specifically, we later learn in other gospel accounts, Peter and John are sent to prepare for the Passover. And they're to go prepare this Passover. They're to find the place, presumably now back in the city of Jerusalem. That's where Passover would take place. Probably, uh, likely a follower of Jesus would have given such hospitality, such men, on extending it to Jesus. And then they would have prepared the food. Having prepared the food, they would have basically a half a day of just doing the shopping and getting everything ready for this. And so here they are then gathered together. You can see it there as he speaks to how they gather. Verse 20 6, excuse me, verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. Uh, talk about like a, a party killer. Talk about a conversation change. I mean, we're on the eve of something historically great. He is about to, as we'll see next week, introduce the significance of the Passover as a foreshadowing of the great Passover of himself being crucified and buried and resurrected. 
But in the middle of all of that that's about to be explained, he says, there's something I need to tell you. One of you is about to betray me. Now, what's interesting about the disciples is that you, we don't see from them what we normally see. What we normally see throughout the ministry of Jesus is a self-promotion. A self-promotion where they think of themselves as great. Who's going to sit at his right hand or his left hand? Who's going to be his favorite? So when they hear about betrayal, what we don't find surprisingly is saying, hey, is it James? Is it Peter? He's kind of an emotional hot mess. They ask the question instead, is it I, Lord? Is it I? And look how it describes it. It says, they were sorrowful, began to say to him one after the other, it's interesting to see how the Lord's people process even the prospect of their own betrayal, their own dishonor of Christ. It's a point of self-examination and reflection. Lord, is it me? I, I don't want that to be true. This saddens me. This grieves me. And Jesus says something pretty shocking. Verse 23 he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. He's talking about who he's eating with. And he speaks about, as it's written, this is going to take place. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be, have been better for as if that man had never been born. Jesus is speaking about the significance of the consequence of this betrayal. Having taken the money, going to betray Jesus, it's now to be seen as Judas. Now notice what Judas says. I want you to look at what Judas says in verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? Notice the difference there, verse 22. All the other disciples are framing their question like this. Is it I, Lord? Look how Judas asked this question. Is it I, Rabbi? There's already a difference in relationship and how they see Jesus. To Judas, Jesus is nothing more than just a Jewish rabbi. Any hopes of prominence, any hopes of popularity, any hopes of prestige from his kingdom seemingly is lost, and he is but a rabbi to be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, where the followers of Christ, the true disciples, the 11 of those who would be his, see his relationship completely different. Judas tips his hand even in his question. The Lord's words were not understood by the other disciples as John had made clear in John 13. If they had understood it, it is doubtful that they would even let Judas leave the room. But they didn't understand it. And as we learn, later learn in the Gospel of John chapter 13, Judah, Judas excuse me, eventually leaves. And here's what I want to make sure we don't miss in this. Three lessons. What I think is shocking by way of encouragement is the reality of number one, the love of the Savior is greater than the sin of others. The love of the Savior is greater than the sin of others. What you have to understand is that Jesus knew of Judas's betrayal even before it took place, 
Nothing changes his plans. This is significant even for us to reflect on today because honestly, if you just kind of take a cursory glance at society, you see us in our depravity. You see us in our rebelliousness. You see us in our sin. And you honestly think, God, I don't think there's anything here worth offering salvation for. And God is not in any way persuaded to change his mind. He continues the plan that has been laid out for him. And that's exactly what it says there in the text. You can kind of see how he kind of walks through that. That's how he explains the significance of what's to take place. How he recognizes the, the promise that's been made. Verse 24, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. As we see in Ephesians chapter 1, before the foundation of the world, God had a plan for the salvation of sinners. As mind-blowing as it is and as sort of mentally warping as it is to get our mind around that, nevertheless, the scriptures reveal that. Now, why is this significant to say that the love of the Savior is greater than the sin of others? Because, friend, this is kind of the, the, the calm in the midst of the storm. God's love for sinners to offer salvation is regardless of what others will do to flip that script and to overturn that plan. Judas might think he's changing up the plan. No, he's just serving the plan. He's just serving the plan. As the scripture says, nothing can thwart the hand of our God. He is accomplishing his plans right on schedule, right on time. The second lesson from Judas's betrayal, it's a simple lesson but profound and one I remind myself of throughout the day, every single day. It's this. The Lord knows. The Lord knows. God is omniscient. He knows all things. You and I encounter the day as it unfolds before our eyes, what we see, or what we learn from others and what they have seen, and we find ourselves in various stages of encouragement or concern, excitement or sorrow. Not only what we learn, but also what we speculate we might still yet learn. What about her? What about him? What about them? The things that we have unpacked before us. And how often do we need to remind ourselves it's not what we know and not what others know, it's what the Lord knows. The Lord knows. God's plan is not affected. Just keeping your finger in Matthew chapter 26, go if you would to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 not familiar with the scripture, it's just a few books to the right in your Bible. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, let's look at this. As Peter, one of these 12 disciples, is later preaching a sermon to the Jewish people, listen to what he says in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. We're just going to highlight two verses because I want to draw your attention to this point about the Lord knows. Verse 22, men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, 
a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up. That's the betrayal. Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. In verse 23, we see the mystery of both human responsibility. Judas delivered up Jesus and God's sovereignty. Is Judas responsible for his actions? 100% yes. Scripture makes it undeniably clear. Jesus says himself, it'd be better for the person not to have been born for the consequence that's going to come to him. But is God's plan in any way changed or affected by sinful man? By no means. Friends, I encourage you to comfort yourself regularly with all of the richness of what that phrase means throughout the day. The Lord knows. If he knows, it's going to be okay. Because it's not just in his knowing, it's in his acting in light of what he knows. He knows all things, he can do all things, and he will do all things according to his good, wise, perfect plan. No greater illustration could that be than the reality of the significance of the plan of the Son of God being crucified for sinners. Third lesson from Judas' betrayal. The Savior understands rejection and the temptation that comes from that. The Savior understands rejection and the temptation that comes from that. On a relational level, outside of the salvific plan of God, on a relational level, there is no human experience that you could have gone through, have yet to go through, that Jesus does not in some way understand that personally can relate to you in that, even the temptation of what to do in response to that, and yet he did not sin. This is not just a model to imitate. This is an encouragement, an example to find comfort in because he is our sympathetic high priest. Listen just as I read to you, Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. The author of Hebrews says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And the encouragement for you even relationally is to recognize the reality that you will experience nowhere near the level that Jesus has but nevertheless impart taste the bitterness of rejection from others in your life. And you will be tempted, and in a spirit of honesty and transparency, give in to that temptation to be resentful, to be bitter, to be unforgiving, to be judgmental, to become cynical and guarded, 
All of those are common reactions to the taste of bitterness and rejection of others, from others, betrayal from them. The significance here is not try to do better like Jesus did. You can try, and you can learn. Friends, the significance here is to take those wrong responses to those friendships that have betrayed you and give us another opportunity to go back to the gospel of Jesus Christ yourself. Jesus is not just a better example. He is the substitutionary savior that you cannot be for yourself. He has loved perfectly, forgiven completely, died sacrificially, so that you and I might have peace with God first and foremost, and have any understanding of peace with each other. For those of you who are not in Christ, your goal is not to become a better friend. Your first and foremost goal is to be an honest person before the Lord. To not follow in the footsteps of Judas, but to follow in the footsteps of the other disciples who would at times, as we're going to see in the coming weeks, tragically even deny him, but betraying him is not the same as we'll see as denying him. But find forgiveness in Christ. Would you but turn to him and find that hope in him? For those of us who have found that forgiveness in him through faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone, then let's come back to the reminder of what can power our efforts again to return to reconciling relationships and trusting the Lord's plan in our life, even if it's often mysterious and difficult to see, the Lord knows. He's working all things according to his plan for your good and his glory. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.